But as Jamie said last week, that the point of 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 is not really eschatology at all, um, or even specifically the man of lawlessness that Paul refers to. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, it's really about Paul's pastoral heart. And I just want to remind you of what uh, Paul starts out with in, in this chapter when he says, We ask you, brothers, um, to not be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Apparently, at some point, someone has come into the church and began teaching that the day of the Lord has already come. And that left the people in, in Thessalonica, in, in the church there, shaken in mind and alarmed. In other words, they were anxious about the Lord's return and if it had already happened. And Paul is seeking to set their heart at ease. That, that is the thrust of this chapter. That is the main point. All the other stuff is just extra. But Paul's hope and his goal is to just set these believers at ease when it comes to the second coming of Christ. We know that God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and love and self-control, as Second Timothy says. And now... The, second, or the Thessalonians didn't have this letter from 2 Timothy like we do. We're, we sit in a very privileged position in the church right now that we have the Bible that you're holding in your hand, but they didn't have that letter yet. And so Paul is, is trying to reassure them because of this heresy that was being taught in the church that the Lord had already returned. So we're going to look at these few verses here at the end of chapter 2, and it's a short little section, so... I think we can read this passage pretty easily as a church together this morning. We'll put it up on the screen, starting in verse 13. But we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. To this He called you through our gospel so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace, Comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. Amen. If you're taking notes this morning, I'm going to break this passage down into three sections. Um, let me give you those real quick before we jump in. One, Paul starts by giving thanks. And we're going to see that in verses 13 through 14. And we're going to look at exactly what he is thankful for. Second, Paul encourages them to stand firm. And we see that in verse 15. And then Paul ends with God's eternal encouragement in verses 16 through 17. So Paul starts by giving thanks. 
Paul encourages them to stand firm, and Paul ends with God's eternal encouragement. But let's look at that first one. Paul starts by giving thanks there in verses 13 through 14, and I want you to notice what he gives thanks for. He thanks God for giving us the gospel. I want you to listen to this quote by the late Dr. Uh, Reader. He passed away tragically this week in a car accident. But he said this, Early in my Christian life, I thought the gospel was the message to win people to Christ. Then, in disciple-making, one moved on to deeper things. What a fallacy. You never move beyond the gospel. You go deeper and higher with the gospel, but never beyond the gospel. The gospel is what defines how to be a Christian man, woman, spouse, parent, and citizen. The gospel brings the reign of Christ's kingdom to our hearts and throughout the world. The gospel blessings give joy to the Christian life and the ability to rejoice even in suffering. The gospel imperatives direct our new desire to lovingly obey our Lord. The gospel provides the foundation, the formation, and the motivation as it ignites our loving obedience to Christ. As we discover the transforming truth in the gospel that God first loved us. This is exactly what Paul is talking about in verses 13 and 14. And we see this clearly in this passage that God first loved us. The Christians at Thessalonica didn't choose him, Paul says. He chose them. We know this because of what these two verses say, very plainly. But we also know this because Paul used the word but at the beginning of verse 13. I don't know if you noticed that. But if you, if you have your Bible, look back to verses 11 and 12, where Paul says, Therefore God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. In other words, believe the truth being the gospel. Right? They did not believe the gospel. And then Paul says, but God, right? But we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. To this, He called you through our gospel so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul is contrasting two different groups of people here. That, that's where the but comes in. There is the first group that denied the gospel, that rejected the gospel, and God turned them over to their own beliefs. But then there are those that chose to believe the truth when they heard the truth. And Paul is saying that, that we that he is so thankful for them, that, that, that they have been embraced. They, they embraced the truth and therefore embraced by God. 
The divine election of the Thessalonians is embedded deeply in God's love for them. The way the author actually speaks of election here is unique in all of the rest of the New Testament. He uses a verb that means to take for or to one's self. In other contexts, when this verb is used, it's referring to the selection of something or making a decision because it is preferred. Never in the sense of election, but that's how this verb is used at other places, that there's, there's a preferential. God is, is choosing to share his love. Paul's saying that God's election to these Thessalonians was not only unto salvation, it wasn't only to the gospel, but it was to himself. That God was calling these people to himself. And Paul also uses the, the word first fruits here. And this is a concept that is deeply rooted in the Old Testament. And it, and it always referred to the portion dedicated to God that, that sanctified the whole. In other words, you, you gave a small portion of your first fruits. If you were in a farming society, right? You, you give him your, your first five apples and you keep the other 5,000 apples. But, but you're showing him I'm giving you the best. I'm I'm giving you my first fruits. And rather than me partake of them, I'm going to give those to you, Lord. And and that's what Paul is saying that the church in Thessalonians was like. They, They were the first fruits of the church. They were were the consecrated firstborn who, like the Levites, were set apart for the work of God. But... The church as a whole is the first fruits of, the man, of mankind to God. That, that's what the church is. We are the first fruits of all the world. And Paul talks about in this passage sanctification. And, and again, it's just kind of a big fancy religious word. But it's, it's really just talking about the Holy Spirit's present work in believers. And this work will not be completed until Christ's return. Then Christ's church will be glorified in his holy ones. We see that in chapter 1, verse 10, that, that we will be glorified as his holy one. And this hope of glory is, is assured to the Thessalonian converts because, as Paul said, our testimony to you was believed. In other words, you heard the gospel, you responded to the gospel, and you believed. So there's a, 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 the Spirit's sanctifying work here is linked to their belief in the truth. And the contrast is plain between those now addressed and all who did not believe the truth, but took pleasure in unrighteousness in verse 12. The truth is the revelation of God and His way of salvation imparted to us through the gospel. Paul expresses his thanks to God that he has chosen the Thessalonian believers, not simply that that he chose them in Christ before the beginning of the world, but that his eternal choice of them has now been manifested in time by their wholehearted response to the gospel. This is the way we know that their election is true, is that they have heard the gospel and they have responded to the gospel and they have believed the gospel. And that's what Paul is giving thanks for here. 
That the evidence is seen clearly in the way in which they are responding as Christians. In verse 14, the, the thing that the Thessalonians will obtain is the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. And that will only be revealed at His second coming. Hence the, the context of this chapter. Paul is trying to set them at ease and remind them of what's going to happen when that day comes. They're afraid the day's already come. And Paul is saying, no, that day hasn't come. And one of the reasons you know it hasn't come is because you haven't received this. This was part of the gospel presentation that we shared with you when we were there. So therefore, believers, understand and know it can't have already happened because you haven't already received this. Paul is trying to get their their events in the proper order so that they will be at ease. They will not be shaken in mind and anxious. But instead looking forward to the promise of receiving His glory. This, This became one of the great hopes of the Christian faith. In fact, both Paul and Peter announced that Christians are called to this glory. In Romans 8.30 and 1 Peter 5.10. Glory is is frequently associated with honor in in inscriptions from this time period. Obtaining such honor was one of the chief concerns in ancient Mediterranean cultures. They lived in what was called the honor-shame culture. And we don't don't live in that anymore, but that's, that's the culture into which Paul is writing to. And for the Christians in Thessalonica, the promise of receiving this exalted honor would have been a great comfort and an encouragement for them. Especially in light of the dishonor and the persecution they were being uh, put under by their communities. Because of their adherence to this man who was humiliated on a cross. This would have been very encouraging for them in this culture to know that yes you you are suffering now but you will be honored you will be exalted when you receive his glory which is far better than any of our glory that this would have been a great hope and an inspiration for them And that transitions into our second point here in this text that that he's encouraging them to stand firm. So in other words, because of all this, I want to encourage you now to stand firm. But how do we stand firm? I would argue the same thing that he was thankful for is the way in which we stand firm. The gospel. Verse 15, in this verse Paul returns to the principal concern of this section, the the stability of the Thessalonian Christians in the face of this false teaching, which, again, we don't know where it came from, but the Thessalonians should hold fast to the teaching they received from the apostles. This is what is meant by the traditions. The, The gospel that was presented to them, they need to hold fast to what they have already been taught. Because that will help to set them at ease. Knowing that Jesus died for them. Knowing that He 
sacrificed himself on a cross for them so that they might one day receive his glory when he returns would bring great comfort and peace. This term, this word used here for the traditions is we see it in the New Testament used in both a positive way and a negative way. Often the the traditions of men are contrasted with the traditions of God. But in this text, it's, it's clearly positive because the word denotes the authoritative apostolic tradition the founders of this congregation had handed over to the members of the church. Remember, they're only there for a couple of weeks when they founded this church. This, there's no time for a three-year seminary degree. We've got to get you what's most important, what's most effective for changing lives, the gospel. So how do we stand firm? We stand firm by standing on the gospel. Let me remind you of part of that quote again that I read earlier. You never move beyond the gospel. You go deeper and higher with the gospel, but never beyond the gospel. At this point, the gospel is what the church at Thessalonica had. This is what Paul keeps pointing them back to. Never be confused by those who try to raise tradition above the gospel and God's word. Church traditions can be helpful. Don't mishear me. They can be helpful, but they should never rise to the level of the gospel and God's word. Never. And common sense should help us understand that here, when Paul calls on them to go back to the tradition, there's no Baptist faith and message for him to go back to. There's no Westminster Catechism for him to go back to. There's no 1689 London Baptist Confession for him to go back to. There's not even an Apostles' Creed at this point for him to be calling them back to. All these things, again, incredibly helpful as we grow as believers. But we must not use passages like this to justify their use. This has been a common heresy in the Catholic Church for years. To elevate their traditions and their writings above that of Scripture. Because at the time Paul wrote this, none of them existed. So logic tells us this could not be what Paul is referring to when he invokes them going back to the traditions. I see, I say this as, as a warning to be careful if you ever find yourself in a church that's elevating tradition, especially bad tradition, but even good tradition, above the gospel and God's word. Finally, Paul moves to his last point. 
of God's eternal encouragement in verses 16 through 17. How, how do we receive this internal encouragement? We receive it through God's grace. God is known here as the one who, by his grace, gives us eternal encouragement and good hope. What is that issue here in verse 16 is the final destiny of believers. In other words, their eschatological hope, which should become the lens through which they, they seek to face their current state of persecution. Right? It, it's easy for us when we are suffering to think about the short term, to think about what's going to happen next week. What's going to happen next month? What's this going to look like in a year? And what we lose in those moments is the eternal perspective that Paul is trying to call them back to. That that no matter how bad your situation is, no matter how much you are suffering today, in light of this future hope we have, we will remember that this life is like a vapor. This present suffering is fading away. And this is something these believers needed to hear because they were being persecuted for their belief in the gospel. And they were struggling. And, and Paul is, is, is here reminding them of their destiny. On the one hand, is, he uses the, the word eternal encouragement and on the other, a good hope. According to one commentator, this last expression was quite common in ancient literature and frequently used uh, to refer to high hopes that were firm and ripe with the expectation of being fulfilled. But it can also refer to life after death and even the happiness associated with life after death. Since the expression good hope here appears in combination with eternal encouragement, the thought most likely points to the Christian hope, which transcends this life and carries with it the promise of bliss in the life to come. The theme of hope here permeates the the entire first letter to this church. And it's understood as a particular virtue that distinguishes Christians from the rest of humanity. You might remember some of the sermons from 1 Thessalonians where I, I was contrasting the way the Greeks looked at things versus the way Paul was calling these believers to look at things. That the idea of of hopes was nothing more than a negative thought about the future. One day I'm going to be put into the ground and that is the end of me. But the destiny and end of the Christian is a good hope. The church suffered greatly and, and desperately needed the encouragement that came from God our Father. But, but the adjective eternal can point to an alternative understanding of encouragement in this verse. This, this term also appears in the context where a person attempts to console another in the face of the pain and sadness that fills the soul when confronted with death. This, this comfort that was offered in Greek society was not genuine hope. Several Ancients of Greek society often quoted these words, best of all for mortals is never to have been born, 
but, the, but for those who have been born to die as soon as possible. This, is, this was their hope. This was the best they had. Whatever hopes that they were regarding uh, any kind of immorality or immortality were vague and uncertain at best. What the Thessalonians, the, the, the comfort that our God, our Father gives us is eternal. This hope transcends death. It offers something more than a grave as the goal of life. Do you see the difference? Because I don't, I don't think a lot of people in our day and age really stop and think about their system of belief. I hear people say all the time, well, then this is it. This is all there is. I might as well enjoy it. Let's think that through for a minute. Why, why do you get up and go? Why not just be like the Greeks and say, it's better for me to die as soon as possible? Because every day you live, every day you get older, something else breaks. I know some of you young people don't understand this, but like you get to this point in your life where you go to the doctor and they do not fix you. They just tell you, you now have a new problem to deal with for the rest of your life. And you're like, no, no, no. Isn't there some medicine or some therapy? No, not really. Just... Live with it till you die. Thanks, Doc. That's encouraging. Right? That, that's the way a lot of your friends and co-workers live their lives. With no hope. And, and Paul is saying, look, we've got an eternal hope. We, we've got something completely different that we rest in. Because of the gospel. Because God our Father gave it to them by His grace as a free gift. The, the, the prayer is, to, is here rooted in the grace of God which holds promise of life after death. The prayer also expresses in verse 17, the desire that God may strengthen them or their hearts. The word most likely, the word most likely serves as the object of both verbs in the absent. Well, sorry. Um, the same word appears in 1 Thessalonians 3, 13. Strengthen your hearts. Where the apostle prays that the, the heart of the Thessalonians might be established in holiness in anticipation of the time when they shall stand in the presence of our God and Father when our Lord Jesus comes. He's expressing the, the concern that the Thessalonians will do the will of God so that they will stand firm. Paul wants the gospel to shape every good deed and every word in our life. This combination we see of deed and word is found throughout the New Testament. And it's quite common in ancient literature of the time here as well, of both evil words and evil deeds. And, and the prayer is that everything they do will be good and not evil, both in word and in deed. Not just in what you say, but in what you do. 
and what orients their conduct, what guides them, according to this prayer, is the past and future work of God. What God has done and what God will do. This, this is what empowers and directs us, Paul is praying. And again, the importance of this prayer is highlighted by the persecution that they were facing daily. This wasn't the American church where everything was pretty good. Where our persecution was, somebody made fun of us for being a Christian. This, this was persecution, murder. People burning down your establishment. Because you didn't worship their gods. And the prayer here, it not only presents a plea to God, but it also serves as an implicit encouragement to the Thessalonians to, to live lives that are in harmony with the desire of the prayer he's praying here. Now, in closing, I, I want to read that quote to you again. And if you are, that I used earlier, if you're a believer, I want you to ask the Holy Spirit to just convict you in the areas of your life that you think maybe you have moved beyond the gospel. You never move beyond the gospel. You go deeper and higher with the gospel, but never beyond the gospel. The gospel is what defines how to be a Christian man, woman, spouse, parent, and citizen. The gospel brings the reign of Christ's kingdom to our hearts and throughout the world. The gospel blessings give joy to the Christian life and the ability to rejoice even in suffering. The gospel imperatives direct our new desire to lovingly obey our Lord. The gospel provides the foundation, the formation, and the motivation as it ignites our loving obedience to Christ. As we discover the transforming truth that he first loved us. For those of you who are here this morning and you don't know Christ, I mean, are you like the Greeks and live with no real hope after death? Do you want this eternal encouragement that Paul is talking about here? Because it only comes through the gospel. So, so what is this gospel tradition that Paul is speaking of in this passage? Well, back in Genesis, the Bible starts with God creating man and this world, and it was good. But then sin entered into the world and, and created a rebellion against God, which led to a separation between a, a righteous and loving God and a sinful and sometimes hateful man. And this division between God and man also led to a great division between man and man. So what the world, the, so that the world that you see around you today is a result of the fall of man. It's a result of sin. And, and, and the great question of the Bible is this, 
If God is holy and can have nothing to do with sin, if God is righteous and must always come against sin, then how could we ever be reconciled to God? The Bible teaches in Romans 3.23 that for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Now you might argue with the words that I'm using here or the terminology, but you can't argue with the truth of it. We see evil in this world. If you don't believe me, do something I often encourage people not to do and turn on the news. Study human history. You'll see that the history of the human race is a history of humans doing horrible things to humans. You will see sin abounding to ruin nations you'll see nations being lifted up and nations being destroyed you'll see people being oppressed you'll see violence occurring for no apparent reason it's the result of sin how can a sinful man ever be reconciled to a just god whose justice demands that they are punished The answer is found in the person of Jesus Christ. And the the Bible teaches that God is a trinity, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And that to bring about the salvation of man, God would do something outrageous, unimaginable, and miraculous. He would show us his love. And he would do so by doing this. In his righteousness, he condemns our evil, but in his love, God becomes a man in the person of Jesus of Nazareth. A historical person. God chose to intervene in our human history. And this Jesus lived the perfect life that that none of us could ever live. And then he goes to a cross. Now most of you, I'm sure, are aware of what a cross looks like. If not, there's one directly behind me. And Jesus was nailed there. And a crown of thorns was placed on his head And all of this was done for our sin. But no matter how great our imaginations may be, as we try to create this scene in art and literature and movies, what what we can't see is not just the physical death that Christ paid for our sins. But, but how those sins on that cross were laid upon Him. And how all of the punishment of a holy and righteous God fell upon His head. The head of God the Son. 
He suffered it to the fullness. And then right before he died, he cried out, it is finished. Meaning, it is paid in full. We owed the debt because of our sin. And that debt was for us to suffer eternally. But on the cross, God himself took our place, bore our sin, and suffered the wrath of God that we deserve. In that moment, he extinguished all of that wrath. And on the third day, he rose again from the dead, and he ascended up into heaven. And this Jesus, the Son of God, sat down at the right hand of God. And the Bible teaches us that Jesus is the way, truth, and the life, and that no man comes to God except through him. There's one God and one mediator between God and man, and that mediator is our Savior, Jesus Christ. You see, the Christian person, as one person put it, is the only one who can say that they're going to heaven without being self-righteous. Because in all other religions, how you get to heaven is by being good and earning it. But in Christianity, you are not reconciled to God through your own virtue or merit. But you're reconciled to God through the virtue and merit of Jesus. If I were to die right now, I have great assurance of being reconciled and accepted by God. Why? Because over 2,000 years ago, the Son of God died in my place. In the, in the place of a sinner. I don't trust in myself. If you're here this morning, I, I hope that you are not trusting in yourself. Or your good works. Or your church attendance. It is Christ alone. And I know some of you here this morning, you might be tempted to say, but Dale, you don't know how much I've sinned. We've all sinned so much, but his death is more powerful than any sin we could have committed. His death is sufficient to pay for all of your sin. If you're here this morning and this describes you, you might naturally ask, well, what must I do to be saved? And the Bible says you, you don't have to do some amazing work. You don't have to do some penance. You, 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 you just believe. Trust in Jesus Christ. Abandon All hope in yourself and your good works. Abandon all of your religious devotion and church attendance. And trust in the person and work of Jesus Christ on your behalf.
For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son. That whoever believes in Him will not perish but have everlasting life. That's the promise of God to the greatest of sinners this morning. This is what Paul wanted the Thessalonians to rest in. They didn't need to be shaken in mind. They didn't need to be anxious and fearful. They needed to trust the gospel, which means not trusting myself, but instead trusting him. Who are you trusting in this morning? And you might say, well, how will I know? Are you shaken in mind? Are you uneasy about the times that we live in? Are you fearful? Might be a good indication that you're trusting more in yourself than trusting in Him. Let's pray. Father, thank You for Your Gospel. Thank You, Lord, that we never move beyond Your Gospel. And Lord, may we be a church that plums the depths and climbs the highest heights of Your Gospel. But we never Never move past or forget the gospel. It is what sets our feet on a firm foundation. It enables us to stand firm, to have eternal encouragement and comfort and hope. And Lord, this morning I pray that everyone in this room has this hope. They have placed their life in your hands. That they have received the free gift extended to them by your grace. And Lord, I pray that no one would leave here this morning, as verse 11 and 12 say, and, and reject your truth. And continue to live in unrighteousness. And God, for those of us that are here this morning and we have, we, we, we find ourselves, though believers, God, we, we, we slowly find ourselves putting our trust back in ourselves and, and our mental ability to figure things out. And, and we find ourselves anxious and shaken in mind this morning because we are trying to do something that only a holy God can God may we confess and repent of that this morning and turn back to you through the gospel for those of you who are here and it's your first time God I pray that they they would turn to you Confess their need for a Savior and place their life in your hands and trust the finished work of Jesus Christ in their life. We have so much, Lord, to be thankful for. 
And we praise you for your word. These things in Jesus' name.